This is a Federal News Network podcast. Last year was a good one to be a federal contractor because of the pandemic and a few other things. Federal contract spending went up by double digits. And there were a few changes to the list of the largest federal contractors. We get the highlights from Bloomberg Federal Market Analyst, Laura Christ. Laura, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And this is the annual release of the Bloomberg Top 200. But first, give us a sense of the spending rises. I mean, these were pretty dramatic. Yeah. So in fiscal 2020, it was a record high spending of $682 billion, which is pretty crazy just comparing it to the previous year of $599 billion in fiscal 19. As you said, a lot of that was due to COVID, but we can talk about some of the other trends as well. Yes, COVID, I think we understand a lot of the spending and it was all over the place. Were there any other factors driving that, though, last year? Yeah, so two areas that we really like to concentrate on at Bloomberg Government are IT and professional services. And both of those markets would have probably grown in fiscal 2020 compared to 2019. You know, historical trends showed that they would grow. It's a little hard to kind of completely decouple COVID spending and regular market spending, but just based on what we saw going on in both of those markets, I think both of those would have continued with IT in particular. You know, with COVID, we saw more increases in like remote work type spending. So that was going to be hardware and security. But we also saw things like IT modernization spending increasing, which very likely would have continued increasing um, even without COVID. And which agencies accounted for the single biggest increase in spending? So top agencies are going to be HHS, which is mostly going to be COVID. We're going to talk about that a lot, I think, um, even though people are tired of talking about it. VA spending went up, and that was not necessarily because of COVID. There's a big contract called Patient-Centered Community with TriWest. They provide medical services, and it wasn't all COVID. VA increased about $3 billion because of the pandemic, but overall it increased more like 10 So we saw some increases there that weren't pandemic related. The Navy saw a big increase, um, mostly due to F-35 purchases. So those are kind of some of the big ones that I saw. And there was also a fairly healthy increase in the use of other transaction authorities. And I think that's something that industry likes to get. And it's certainly something government likes to do because it's easier than awarding under the FAR. For sure. Yeah. So we've been seeing OTA increases for the past few years, um, and it's something that my team has covered pretty heavily, you know, for a variety of things like prototypes and R&D type contracts. IT has become more common for OTA use. But actually, again, the big increase for OTAs is going to be in the medical and R&D to help develop vaccines and medical equipment due to the pandemic. So was Operation Warp Speed, was that part of the contracting spending, the spending to develop the vaccines in the first place? I'm not 100% sure if that overlaps. I haven't seen Operation Warp Speed showing up in the OTA stuff in particular, but I I just meant in the general contracting spending. Oh, yeah, it showed up. I mean, you can see the vaccines being developed. You can see the logistics for moving them from, you know, one place to another. Manufacturing, you find that in the contract data. Okay, and you're projecting a pretty good year for 2021, too, based on trends you're looking at. Just give us a sense of where that's headed. So 2021 spending is a little bit hard to project. In the report, you probably saw that we have a pretty wide range um, of a projection from $600 billion, which is fiscal 2019 levels, to $695 billion, which is exceeding fiscal 2020 levels. And the reason for that is the stimulus money. 
it's a little bit hard to know, are we going to continue moving upward with the COVID stimulus spending? CARES Act money expires at the end of fiscal 2021, but ARPA money doesn't, um, at least not all of it. So, you know, we can we see this multi-year money and we don't know exactly when agencies are going to spend it. But we're kind of projecting in this pretty wide range. Some areas where we do think there will be increases are going to be IT and professional services like we talked about. For IT in particular, with Biden's cybersecurity executive order and in general, the administration's focus on cybersecurity, and then also with that executive order, an emphasis on cloud. So we expect IT to increase in those two areas in particular. And then in IT modernization in general, digital services is another area where agencies are trying to kind of improve. So those are some areas where we definitely expect to see increases in 2021. We're speaking with Laura Christ, the federal market analyst at Bloomberg Government. And let's get to the rankings of contractors. I guess people won't be surprised to know that Lockheed Martin remains the number one federal contractor, but by nearly a three to one margin over the next one, which is number two, which is Raytheon, not quite three to one, two and a half to one. So they're never going to be knocked off the top, are they? I don't see it. It's a little hard to knock down your top aircraft producer, especially in fiscal 2021 when they received over $24 billion just for the F-35, which is, I think, about a third of what they were obligated in fiscal 2020. I'm not sure that's going to continue to be the case with the new administration. We'll have to see what happens in fiscal 2021 as far as kind of that level of spending, but I don't think they're going to get knocked down anytime soon. And you did mention TriWest Healthcare Alliance in that big VA deal. So they went from number 42 to number nine in the top 200. So that explains that one. There was one Mm -hmm. oddball one, though, that went from something like 103,000 on the list to number 29, Amentum Patent Holdings. And Mm -hmm. what was the phenomenon there? Amentum in fiscal 2019 wasn't really a company. So AECOM sold their management services division, which is Amentum. So it kind of went from not really existing to being number 29. And what's kind of interesting is that AECOM, um, so it ranked 19 in fiscal 2019. So you could compare Amentum to that kind of, but they weren't part of that, you know, the whole company didn't move. But AECOM did drop to number 95. So you can see that Amentum was a huge part of AECOM. And when you separate them, you get number 29 and number 95 versus 130,000 and number 19. So we still have two companies now in the top 200 rather than one, I guess. It was a big company previously and is still. All right. So but at $2.6 billion, it's not trivial sales. And it looks like to make the 200 list, you have to start with about $359 million in sales to make that list. So there's many, 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 many small contractors. But among that top 200 is people approaching the hundreds of millions and the billions Mm -hmm. of dollars. They're all pretty large. (laughs) Right. So anything else we need to know about this top 200 list? I think a couple other ones that might be interesting that we had talked about are Fisher, Sand and Gravel. That one won some large border wall contracts in fiscal 2020. So we may not see that one next year. We'll have to see what happens with that. It's kind of hard to end contracts once they're started, but I know that the Biden administration did want to try to do that. And then Analytic Services was another one that I think is interesting because it has a uh, company subsidiary that's called ATI, and they manage some consortia. They rose to number six. 
Um, they keep rising actually each year because of this um, subsidiary that manages these consortia because of all the OTA transactions that are going through that company. So it's kind of a weird one where the company is not actually receiving all that money, but they keep popping up higher and higher in the BGUP 200 because that money is going to other contractors. So maybe a good consortia or set of consortia to join for our listeners because they might be able to win some of that work that's going through ATI or analytic services. And finally, the number of mergers and acquisitions was down somewhat in 2020 mm-hmm. relative to 19 and 18, where there were a good 400 of them or so. To what do you attribute that trend? I attribute that to the pandemic as well. I think companies were scared to spend a lot of money because they didn't know what their financial situation was going to be like. We've actually found, at least in the IT market, that fiscal 2021 mergers and acquisitions are probably going to more than make up for M&A activity shortfalls, or I, I don't know if you want to call it that, but the, the dip in 2020 with M&A, more and more companies are maybe buying the companies that they were thinking about previously or making those investments now rather than when they were a little bit more worried about what the economy might look like. Well, one thing you can say, this market is always exciting, isn't it? Oh, for sure. Always lots of changes. Laura Christ is Federal Market Analyst at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, 
What have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that's at the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic. 
uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor, we call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.